for over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. My guest today is Charlotte Clymer. She is on the Rapid Response Communications team for the Human Rights Campaign, and we are going to talk a bit about uh, the Trump administration's sort of still developing ban or restriction on trans people in the military. And we're going to talk about Charlotte because... Now, spoiler alert here, uh, Charlotte is herself a trans person. And then further spoiler alert, I I got to know her before she came out as a trans person. Now, those two things are not the most important things about her. And her experience is not actually super typical of a trans person. And so actually, she and I talked a lot about whether or not we were going to talk about this stuff. And she was, her instinct was kind of to not, and we talk about why she had that instinct and I I won't do too many spoilers, but we talk about that very meta conversation, but I wanted to have her on and I wanted to talk about this stuff because even though I consider myself, you know, pretty educated about inclusivity and sensitivity, uh, I think I, I do the best practices for those things. I actually found um, myself having some kind of awkward interactions with Charlotte. Now, super fans may know that I have had another trans person on the show who's great, the very super awesome Parker Malloy. And I've never felt that awkward with her because I think I've known her since she transitioned. And also for a while, I didn't even know she was trans. So in some ways, like it's been pretty easy for me to figure out how to interact with her. I'm not self-conscious about it. But with Charlotte, I am super aware of of whether or not I'm doing things right. And so, well, we talk about it. I ask some stupid questions like, what does cis mean? (laughs) And we talk about the importance of getting your pronouns right, but also about not being too embarrassed or self-conscious when you don't get that stuff right. Because I think the real goal of anyone who's trying to be a good ally is to make and maintain real human connections, which suffer or get neglected when someone gets too scared of making a mistake. Charlotte and I also uh, talk uh, through a listener question that deals really directly with people wanting to be helpful, but not really knowing how. You know, what Charlotte and I don't really get into specifically is something I'll say right now, which is why these questions and this issue is so important at this very moment. Uh, 2017 was the deadliest year on record for trans people in this country. Non-fatal trans violence is also on the rise. I think we're at a time when visibility and real acceptance, you know, haven't caught up with each other. Unfortunately, visibility is always going to lead acceptance. And it's up to people who want to be allies to lead more on acceptance. Now, I I think there's still some liberals and progressives that dismiss trans issues as social issues or identity politics. But to echo a little bit something you'll hear me talk about later, that is exactly right. Trans issues are about society and identity. But they're not really related to who trans people are. They're related to who we all are and what kind of society and what kind of people we want to be. So, all that and even more with Charlotte Clymer coming right up. 
Welcome to the show, Charlotte Clymer, who is the press secretary for Rapid Response at the Human Rights Campaign. Hi, Charlotte. Hey, it's good to be here. So rapid response. I kind of want to like quiz you now. Like I, 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 I want to like <laughs> throw things at you and make you respond. Um, and and oh, there, God. there does have there's a lot of news you could be responding to. Like you must be busy. It's it's Pride Week. I am very busy. Every day, it just, it never ends. Well, it's Pride Month, first of all, let me correct myself. And then also, at the same time, it's Pride Month. We're living under an incredibly repressive administration. <laughs> so. Yes, we are. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I imagine you must be busy. I specifically wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about an issue that's kind of faded from public consciousness a little bit, I think, because we do live in just an onslaught of shit. Um, which is true, it's true, it's true, um, which is um, the ban on transgender military uh, uh, personnel, uh, which was, you know. That's right. It, it, like many other policies, it can kind of stand in for the whole Trump way of approaching the world because it was, you know, decided on the fly as a um, uh, sort of quid pro quo to an interest group. Uh, the policy wasn't incredibly well, well thought out. And when the policy did get a little more thought out, it was thought out badly. Um, mm-hmm. What is the status of that right now? So right now it's circulating the courts. Uh, Lambda Legal, who's uh, a great uh, LGBTQ organization, is pursuing it in the courts. And uh, HRC and other LGBTQ orgs are are backing them up with communications, organizing, and whatnot. Uh, so it's being challenged in the courts. And uh, I, I'm hopeful, but I don't take anything for granted, and, and nor should anyone else. Um, I will say that on the merits of their arguments, uh, they're complete bullshit from beginning <laughs> to end. I mean, just a a just a long line of never ending bullshit. So that's good. No, I think there's something I I, I suspect that there. Um, you know, I, I often describe my audience as well meaning white people. I, I there's probably also a huge portion that are well meaning cis people. Uh, so I'm actually going to ask actually a question that I did not realize I was going to ask, which is, could you explain what cis is? Yeah. So. Uh, transgender is, uh, basically having a gender identity that's different from the sex you were assigned at birth. Cisgender is that the way that you conform to cultural expectations is in line with the sex you were assigned at birth. And it doesn't have to be a perfect overlap, but in general, uh, if you were assigned female at birth, for example, and uh, the world perceives you as female from the get-go, you're cisgender. And what does cis stand for? Uh, oh, cis stands for cisgender. I'm sorry. Well, it, I mean, actually, just what do, I'm just curious now, does it have a particular, does it have a particular meaning why it says C-I-S? Or is it just? Oh, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no clue whatsoever. I, you know, I haven't given much thought to that. Because um, I think there's sort of, um, again, among the well-meaning cis people, there's like, okay, I know that means not transgender and I want to do do right and I want to be inclusive. So I'm going to just go ahead and identify that way. And then I think that there also might be some misunderstanding about why these arguments are bad against having transgender people in the military. First of all, cis is uh, from the Latin derived prefix <laughs> cis meaning on this side of. <laughs> So that's where that comes from, and I feel a little smarter now. So I appreciate that. Okay. Um, and trans, I mean, you know, obviously it's it's going it's it's in a middle ground of sorts. Um, so okay, so let's go through these arguments, right? Uh, when when Trump tweeted his uh, ridiculousness uh, last year, the, the crux of his argument was based on uh, financial stuff. He felt that uh, providing healthcare for uh, transgender folks in the military uh, was an enormous um, burden on the American taxpayer. Uh, the Rand Institute did a study on this, and they found that, uh, based on their best estimate, uh, it, you know the, the 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 upper limit of what transgender folks would cost in terms of healthcare every year in the U.S. military, eight point four million total. That's total out of you know our. 
enormous military, 8.4 million. And on the lower end, uh, they guessed probably, uh, or they estimated somewhere around $2.4 million. Uh, Now, you compare that to something like, um, for example, uh, I I believe it's the uh, F-18 fighter jet project that's cost... Uh, got billions and billions of dollars over the last uh, 15 years, and it's still gone nowhere. Uh, you compare that to the uh, you know studies that come out every six months about the Pentagon losing uh, several hundred million dollars that they can't account for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would even compare it to uh, you know the and I, I I can't get this exactly right, but I think believe it's something like. Thirty to forty million dollars the U.S. military spends on Viagra alone oh, every year. I get to I get to say something though about this, which is someone pointed out to me like we shouldn't use that talking point too much or make fun of it because I mean it is like a serious health issue for people. And if we and if you want to take that no, say, and I was going to say the yeah. exact same thing. Um, yeah. I it, I don't believe that should be used that way. In fact, but I do think it's a good. Um, comparison because yes. it's talking about reproductive health and our larger health related to uh, reproductive systems and and the way that we uh, derive some kind of cultural esteem from how we present to the world, right? That's right. Yeah, that's exactly. I think it's a great direct comparison. It's like if you think that's important for someone, you know, then you should probably think that being, you know, having your trans identity uh, validated is important for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I would never um, want folks to make fun of, of those who who use uh, Viagra or Cialis or anything like that. But it it does speak to the sheer bullshit of that argument, uh, <laughs> just the idea that, um, you know, it's it's too costly. It, 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 it makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, God, Trump is replacing the refrigerators on uh, Air Force One at an enormous cost. I want to say something like I, I God, I can't get this exactly right, but $25, $30 million or something like that to replace those. Um, some enormous amount. And, you know, you have the military parade that's going to be this year, ostensibly oh, in God. November. Um, that cost, that ironically costs right around the same amount that it would be to fund healthcare for openly transgender people in the military for a year. So I think that was a lovely bit, little, bit, little bit of irony. And see, that's a much more of like a... Um, you know, phallic symbol than the Viagra thing. That's like. <laughs> <laughs> now and that... let me tell you something. I and I want your listeners to know this because okay. uh, civilians may not know this. There is not a member of the armed forces who would ever wake up in the morning on a Saturday or whenever the hell this parade is going to be held and think, gosh, I wish I could be in a parade today. <laughs> it's annoying. <laughs> it is tedious. Uh, it, you know, you just spend all day doing this uh, hurry up and, and wait kind of routine. So th- the idea that we're honoring the troops uh, by by hosting a needless parade that's going to be costly when that money could go elsewhere, you know, and, that, and that's why uh, you saw all these polls in the Army Times, Military Times, in which, you know, most service members thought the idea was ridiculous. Because yeah. it is. And you have now brought up something that I wanted to ask you about, which is you— just referenced you you have been a troop i have yes <laughs> a, a a troop indeed um and also you are transgender that's right i am proudly transgender i'm a transgender woman so i would like you to speak a little bit to the other argument that mattis made secretary mattis made about trans um people in the military which is that it would be bad for unit cohesion which is i think something they just say well, when they don't like it when they don't like something. People made that argument about, you know, integrating along race lines as well. So. And yeah, you you are you are a hammer on the nail with that one. Uh, we, you know, that's the same argument that was brought up with, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 black folks, uh, uh, free black folks serving during uh, the Civil War. It was uh, done uh, integrating troops in the 40s. It was done with... Uh, uh, you know, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which we found to be uh, completely the opposite. Uh, it was done with uh, the combat exclusion policy on women being lifted recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only, not only, you know, what I, you know, and, and I think the uh, the last study I read on it was that not only was there no loss of unit cohesion in those units, but having women in those units is actually beneficial to unit morale and cohesion overall because they just bring something different to the table, maybe mm-hmm. a different perspective or a different life experience that can be useful. 
Um, but back to the, you know, and you followed that with the transgender thing. Uh, all four service chiefs recently, uh, when testifying before the Senate Armed Services Committee, were asked by Senator, uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand if they, um, you know, could conceive of any sort of examples of um, unit co- cohesion or morale being affected by the open service of transgender service members. And not one uh, said that. All four uh, said they had no evidence that unit cohesion would be a problem. So I'm not sure where, um, you know, Mr. Mattis, retired General Mattis is getting his facts, but that, that's, that doesn't seem to be the um, opinions of those on the ground. So, And people may wonder, um, like you can't, you could speak to the general issue of unit cohesion because you're a veteran, but you were not out as trans while you were serving? No, I was not. I was not. Um, I was not out, at tra- out as trans. Um, but I will say that I did, before I leave, uh, see a few folks who were starting to transition. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of an open secret. Uh, and no one had an issue with it because these soldiers did their jobs. They were right place, right time, right uniform, ready to get the mission done. And that also speaks to the other side of this argument is that you're going to have, in, 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 the, in the military, we call them shitbags. You're going to have shitbag soldiers, people who just don't care. <laughs> and they're uh, not living up to the standard. But you see that across all gender identities, uh, you know, uh, sexes, uh, races, religions. You know, the, the soldier who doesn't live up to the standard uh, kind of transcends all of those uh, categories. So... If we're gonna if we're gonna talk about standards, then we need to talk about, for example, uh, the young men in infantry units who uh, aren't measuring up to their PT standards, but are given chance after chance after chance to measure up to them. Uh, some of them will go three or four years during their enlisted service without meeting those standards. Uh, so I again, I, I find the standards argument just bullshit. <laughs> and I'm interested too. So you were starting to transition. As right before you left? No, no. no. Um, okay, you knew people who were transitioning. Right, right. Other people, friends right. of mine who were starting to transition, uh, starting to get hormones. Um, and they were already, you know, like one, one of my friends, and I, I won't say her name on here because we didn't talk about this beforehand, but, um, um, oh, well, excuse me. Let me let me back up. Her, oh my God, I meant, I did it again. Um, can we cut that out, that part out, Anna-Marie? Did you miss... Gender someone? I misgendered, yeah, by accident, because I okay. was thinking of, uh, thinking of them when they were in the service. If I, if um, you don't mind, I would actually like to keep that in because I want to. I like. I've made mistakes like that in talking to people, and I people, oh, sure. people yeah. make mistakes like that. And I think what's important is that we catch ourselves and try to do better. Yeah, absolutely. I I didn't want to. Um, Make him feel uncomfortable if he heard this. Right. Well, um, but no, I, agree. I think that's a, a great topic for for discussion. Yeah, because I'll be honest, Charlotte. I because I knew you before you started transitioning. It took me a couple took me a couple times of talking about you before I. Oh yeah, got it. I got yeah, it. And I'm going to use the word straight, but you know what I mean. <laughs> before, <laughs> right. Before I came out. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that that makes complete sense. Uh, what I've told you know all my friends and family when they mess up is that you know you're trying, and that's what matters to me. I'm not going to get angry with you if you accidentally misgender me. I mean that, um, and I don't speak for all trans people on that. Yeah, okay. But you know, Fair as enough. long as a person approaches in good faith, that's what matters to me. No matter who you are, brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your day. You have to do it to stay healthy. Quip knows that, and their team of dentists and designers is focused on helping you take care of your mouth better. For starters, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes, while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides, which always makes me think of our favorite Never Trump guests. Did they get guiding pulses? Couldn't we all use guiding pulses? Anyway, Quip has them. And Quip subscription plans are for your health, not just for convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel, at least when it comes to the toothbrush. 
Other parts of your travel may not be, but the toothbrush will be hygienically transported wherever you take care of your teeth. And finally, everyone loves Quip. They were on Oprah's O list. They were named one of Time's Best Inventions, and it is the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. They're also backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists, and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash friends, again, that's getquip.com slash friends, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash friends, you will get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash friends. Again, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. You were going to tell the story about this friend of yours, so I've... Right. So my friend... uh, you know, he he was already um, presenting as a woman, but more butch and, um, you know, kind of uh, butch lesbian in his own words. Uh, and, um, you know, I don't think anyone really cared because he just did the job he needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what, at the end of the day, matters to most. And I would say I would say all reasonable adults in the military. And was that helpful for you? To see people be accepted that way? To see that your friend be accepted that yes, way? Yes, it was. It absolutely was. Uh, you know, at the time, um, before I got out, uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was was under pretty heavy debate. In fact, I think it was, I mean, I, I must have gotten out two months after, two months before it came, became official, Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And, you know, the debate was raging, and I I knew you know, deep down, there was no way in hell I was going to uh, explore this part of me that needed exploring, um, that desperately needed exploring, because uh, it was just asking for trouble. Um, but seeing, for example, my friend, uh, as he went through his process and did it without apology, that definitely meant a lot to me, especially down the road when I when I needed, um, you know, folks in my life who I saw were success stories in that way. I know that we are having kind of a national conversation about representation right now, and I think it's valuable, but I still get blown away by how much each individual instance of representation can matter. You know, like just seeing someone who you identify with doing their thing. And I would not be out right now were it not for people like Sarah McBride, uh, Laverne Cox, Janet Mock. Uh, you know, these these trans folks and many more beyond them who uh, lived out and proudly and didn't feel like they had to apologize for the people they are. You know, the, the day-to-day lives, and I'm, you know, obviously I've learned this quite a bit more since I came out, but the day-to-day lives of trans people are so just 
I think, filled with stress and anxiety um, about how to calibrate yourself to the world around you, uh, that you need a reminder and looking to folks who are um, in the public spotlight that, oh, yeah, that person is, um, you know, proud of who they are and they're surrounded by people who love them and care about them. And obviously they have a lot of folks who support them. Um, so there's there's hope for me, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like – and, I, you know, I hesitate to say this because I don't want it to be misconstrued. I – ever since I've come out um, – I really feel like I have an obligation, me personally, and not other trans folks, I'm only speaking for me here, is to go into every space I can as a trans person. Um, not not to make a big spectacle, but just to be seen. Just to be seen as who I am. For other people to see me, because they may be going through the same thing internally and not uh, have, the, have the support yet to come out. Um, Seeing those things in our media, in film, um, on TV, and in our politics, you know, seeing Danica Rome uh, win her election against arguably the most anti-LGBTQ state legislature in the country last year was enormous for me. You know, that happened, I want to say that happened a month before I came out, mm. and it really, really meant a lot to me. Uh, and I, I think that was one of those little pushes that I needed to— um, you know, get over the hump of, of all the anxiety. And I'm struck by it's not just famous people, but this friend of yours who was transitioning in, in the military that, you know, his experience just being himself and being supported by others, that that mattered. I mean, it sounds like it mattered as much as, as Laverne Cox could matter. If not more so. Yeah. If not more so, uh, you know, for a, a long time, um, he was the only person I had in my life who I was close to who I could talk about these things. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, years before uh, I came out, I was confiding in him just little things. And, and what he said to me over and over is that, you know, there's no right way to do this. And you got to take your own time with it. Don't feel like you're on anyone else's timeline because you're not. And you know, having someone tell me that um, really took a lot of pressure off and allowed me to kind of navigate um, whatever uh, challenges and, you know, contingencies I could see on the horizon. Um, I was I was openly, I was out as genderqueer for three years. And when I say genderqueer, you know, my, my particular presentation as genderqueer was more um, you know, with a touch of feminine, but mostly masculine, because I was too scared. Mm -hmm. I was really scared of kind of just taking that 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 next step, that huge step of telling people, you know, how I how I really felt. And at the same time, I was looking at working with my therapist through all these issues. And I, I don't want to take up, you know, a, too much of the podcast with talking about this, but I knew from a very early age that something was off. Um, that something felt incongruent with the world around me uh, or with, you know, how other folks were experiencing things. But, you know, my problem is that baseline, that's a big challenge, right? But then, you know, I grew up in an abusive home, so uh, I, I didn't really have any adults that I could talk to about it. Um, you know, I was, uh, you know, sexually abused, and, and believe it or not, that kind of complicates things because it entangles the way mm -hmm. that— you know, you can perceive sexuality versus gender identity versus, um, you know, how folks interact with you based on that. And so, you know, I said when I sat down with my therapist, I didn't bring up the gender identity thing for a good three years. Um, and and finally, you know, I approached it with her, and I remember that session. It took me, and I'm not kidding on about this. It took me three or four minutes of just trying to get out the words of just trying to tell her how I felt inside and how I'd always felt inside. And I felt really ashamed by it. Not only ashamed, or embarrassed by, embarrassed by this issue, but also just a, a very large sense of shame that I couldn't talk about this without feeling bad about myself. Um, so we had a lot of untangling to do. And so it blows my mind that there are 
millions of folks in this country who don't have that, who don't have that kind of access to therapy, uh, access to medical support, um, who don't live in a city like D.C. with, you know, my large network of friends who were immediately supportive when I came out, um, you know, kind of reached out with open arms to ask what they could do to help. Um, not, and not to mention just having a platform where if I get pissed off at something like uh, the, the Lyft driver who was nasty to me a few months ago, I can go on Twitter and talk about it. You know, most trans folks can't do that. Um, so I feel very lucky. And, and at the same time, I, that's why I kind of feel like I personally have an obligation to kind of use all of that privilege that I have to help others. I'm it's a long really, answer. No, I am honored <laughs> that you shared that. Um, I think it's uh, really powerful to hear your individual experience. And I also really appreciate you acknowledging the privilege that you have. And when people think about what they can do, you know, when these well-meaning people who may not think that they can do much about like trans visibility or trans equality, um, what you can do is support policies that, that give more people the tools that you had. Right. Um, That's right. And also you can, you can love people for who they are. You can accept people for who they are. I think it's really interesting. There's, there's a talking point on uh, among conservatives, um, social conservatives, I don't, you know, our terms are so fucked up these days. Like, I don't even know if that's even the right way to describe <laughs> who I'm talking about, but um, who are like, it's such a small percentage of the population. And I'm like, yeah, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We don't. Um, we don't know if it's a small percentage. And what we do know is that there are a lot of people walking around feeling unloved and unsure of who they are. Um, and that, so, you know, being accepting of the people in your life, um, t- way the way you talk matters. If you're someone who thinks that you don't have trans people in your life, you should still think about how you speak, right? Um, you should absolutely think about how you speak. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's. I think we're. You know, I have someone who I have. I I cop to. I used to use really insensitive language under the umbrella of it being funny. Um, I don't think it's funny anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and and then the other thing I wanted to point out about what you had to say inclusive of your point about privilege is that I know when you and I have had background conversations about this, like you've pointed out that your experience is not representative of a, of, of trans experience in general. And that there are a lot of people who don't bring, you know, who don't have the privilege to stand on that you did. And those voices and experiences need to be heard more. Like I think a lot of media kind of flocked to you because you were kind of public facing before you came out. And your story got told pretty widely and, and you got supported because you're in D.C. Um, but you have been you've tried to been pretty careful about raising up other voices. Yes, I I mean, you know, and I don't think I've done it perfectly as and I don't think anyone can do it perfectly. But um, I, you know, I've made mistakes in the past with just general. And I think this is something all allies make in general is just mistakes about space. And you learn over time how to navigate space in a way that uh, is is helpful and not inhibitive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been very self-conscious about, you know, just the amount of space I take up in what the public feels about trans people in general and, or in how they perceive them. Because, you know, I am a transgender person, but I'm white, uh, identify as Christian. I have, you know, a, a pretty good financial privilege. Um, I'm able-bodied. Yeah. You know, there are all these things. And, and no, not to mention, I live in one of the more trans-friendly cities in America, if not the world, D.C. Um, you know, these are things that I have to take into account. And so when someone uh, invites me onto a panel, I'll say, you know, have you thought of uh, this trans woman of color who's doing really great work? Or uh, have you thought about um, getting someone from a community of disability who's working on, you know, those issues? Um, it's very important that, you know, we're good allies even as we do encounter oppression. And I'm not saying people do it perfectly, and I'm sh- I sure as hell don't do it perfectly, but being willing to make mistakes and reflect on them is is really important. And um, I think that's a lesson that we all 
especially in this field, especially with our platforms, have to have to be more conscious of. I want to make clear to listeners, if this seems hypocritical that we're talking about this, like I would just got after you. I really wanted to talk to you because you are kind of a Twitter friend and I wanted to have you on the show because I think, you know, your story is interesting, but you also were, you know, pretty clear that you wanted to raise up some other voices. So, so who is someone that I should, I should be paying attention to that are, that listeners should be paying attention to? One of my favorite uh, activists, um, especially in D.C., is uh, Ruby Corrado. Um, she's a transgender woman uh, who founded Casa Ruby, uh, which is the only bilingual, multicultural, LGBTQ organization in D.C. And, uh, you know, she is all about opening up her doors to transgender, genderqueer, gender nonconforming people, uh, in, in addition to the the wider LGBTQ uh, community. But she's been really uh, essential in just providing um, this community of resources and support for LGBTQ folks in the D.C. area, and I would say the DMV area in general. So um, she's pretty amazing. All right. So she's, she's, she's consider her, you know, uh, penciled in. I have to obviously talk to her first, <laughs> but but I definitely appreciate. Um, I, I just think it, it, you know no one's perfect at it, and this the show is. I try to I try to tr- treat this show as an exercise in um, recovering from perfectionism. So the imperfectness of this exchange and and booking you is very much appreciated. <laughs> um, but speaking of getting better, I know how to make mistakes. <laughs> woohoo! Let's all make mistakes together. Um, yes, I want to take a quick break, and then we have a question from a listener that I I I wanted to have you on specifically to talk about. So uh, we'll be right back. So Thrive Market is a store, an online store for people that would go to you know your your other brand of health food store that I could name, but I, I don't think I'm supposed to. If you go to that big store, that's a big health food store that rhymes with moods, you'll probably like Thrive. They sell all the top organic and healthy products for 25 to 50% off and it ships straight to your door. They have all the top premium healthy and organic products that you could find at that I usually get from the but unlike your typical organic products that are marked up to premium prices, Thrive Market sells the same premium products at wholesale prices. Now, how do they do that? Thrive Market cuts out all the middlemen and works directly with the brands, and then they pass the savings to you. That's that's sort of how direct marketing you know works, and Thrive Market does that. And even better, for everyone who signs up, Thrive Market donates a membership to a low-income family, a veteran, or a teacher. So together, we're all making healthy living affordable for everyone. It's a company I'm honored to support. Now, they also make it really easy to shop. Not only does it have you know everything you would get at that other grocery store, and ship straight to your door. But if you have specific interests and specific dietary concerns, you can sort by that dietary concern, organic, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, paleo, sustainably farmed, all of that. You can just sort with a click. So get 25% off your first order and a free 30-day trial. Keep in mind, the prices are already 25 to 50% off. And now they're giving you that extra 25% off your first order and a free 30-day trial. Do the math. I won't, but that's that's a very good deal. It, if you spend $100 at the grocery store, it will be around $50 to $75 on Thrive Market because of the already low prices, and now they're giving you an extra 25% off. So if you're making a grocery run this week and you are not looking forward to it, why not give Thrive Market a try and shop from your home? Go to thrivemarket.com slash friends. That's thrivemarket.com slash friends. You can trust Thrive Market's options will be sourced from the best of the best ingredients at the most affordable prices. They do the homework for you. That's thrivemarket.com slash friends. If you have a defined personal style, and maybe even more if you don't, you know how easy it is to fall into a rut and wear the same thing every day. I mean, there's something to be said for that, but at the same time, it can feel like a rut. And if it feels like a rut, that's a problem. If it feels like a uniform that you like, fine. It feels like a rut. Well, you might want to switch things up. And I fully, heartily, personally recommend Stitch Fix. This is a service that I used before they became an advertiser on the show. 
I'm a huge fan. They are the personal stylist for people that don't think of themselves as needing personal stylists or who thought they couldn't afford a personal stylist, perhaps. Um, you you give them like your uh, Instagram feed and your Pinterest page and someone, an individual person who will write you a personal note, picks out some clothes for you, picks out a few outfits for you. And with summer coming or having come, depending on where you live, where we are, it's still pretty cold, uh, is a perfect time to try some new things. So maybe you need some new looks to get through the wedding season, or maybe you need some options because it's 100 degrees outside and 50 degrees inside your office. Stitch Fix will help you with all of that. You just tell them your sizes, some information about your lifestyle and your preferred budget. And again, this budget can be anything. You don't have to be a very fancy person. And one of their stylists will send you clothes and accessories picked just for you. You don't even have to leave the house. Why is it that so many of my advertisers are about not leaving the house? I, I feel a little typecast, but I also enjoy not leaving the house. Each Stitch Fix box comes with five items you can try out at home. You only pay for the items you keep. Returns are easy. Stitch Fix covers cost both ways for returns and exchanges too, and there's no subscription required. You can get your fix monthly, quarterly, or whenever. I actually get mine bi-monthly. You can get your first fix at stitchfix.com friends and get 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com friends to get started with Stitch Fix today. stitchfix.com friends for 25% off when you keep all five items. So we have a listener question and have some audio for it. So let's hear that question now. In the summer of 2016, I started my first academic job at a small rural college. I realized pretty quickly that it was the whitest place I've ever lived. And over time, I've also realized that the culture of the campus is pretty regressive. While there is a small group of us who are advocating for things like staff and student training to promote inclusivity on campus, we have been met repeatedly by resistance from our colleagues as well as our superiors. What are some steps that I, a well-meaning, white, heterosexual woman, among a group of white, heterosexual faculty, can take to make sure that all of my students are safe and respected outside of my classroom? So, Charlotte, I feel like this is like this is what HRC does, right? So I I also want to say I really appreciate kind of the place that woman is coming from. Um, So so what do we do with this well-meaning person? Okay, I I think. Uh, first of all, it's good to embrace nuance. Uh, you know, individuals can do a lot, but you're not going to do everything overnight. Uh, and so giving yourself, you know, kind of the space and not to rhyme here, but the grace to slowly uh, be a force of change uh, in your community or um, in any space that, you know, you live or work uh, is good. And it's not only beneficial to you, but beneficial to the folks you're trying to help. And the reason I say that is because the experience of, you know, a teacher in, I don't know, um, a really progressive school community in L.A. is going to be different from one in, say, uh, Round Rock, Texas, you know, where I lived for several years. Um, It's going to be different in the way that resources are available to you. And if you have uh, supportive school administrators uh, or parents who are not knocking down your door uh, because you were quote unquote too liberal uh, mm-hmm. in your classroom, um, I will say here's the baseline. I wish more than anything that I had had someone who I could have talked to when I was a kid about all of this. And you know, when I think of my favorite teachers, there's no way in hell I would have talked to them about gender identity and feeling like I was really a girl uh, and and wanting to you know explore that and know more about it. I think baseline providing an, an open ear and, and letting you know your students know that you're, you're someone they can talk to about these issues is, is huge. I mean, it's enormous. It really is. Um, going beyond that, uh, respecting pronouns, uh, teaching your class you know why pronouns should be respected, uh, you know enforcing um, you know the way that you know, your students talk to each other in regards to gender identity or sexuality. And um, those are just the baseline, right? Uh, going beyond that, lobbying your school board uh, for education programs or awareness, you know, uh, co-sponsoring an LGBTQ student group on campus. Uh, and I would say letting 
whenever possible, students lead these efforts is really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, and this is something you and I talked on background about, um, there's, there's, there can be some tricky politics with, with being an ally and trying to help and being full of good intentions, but maybe taking up too much space. And so I would say whenever you can support a student-led effort to make folks more aware of LGBTQ politics and uh, the struggles of LGBTQ people, uh, uh, that much better for it. I was thinking about this particular situation this person's in and how we, we you, you mentioned pronouns in, in the first segment. We were talking about how in our individual lives, just be respectful and loving that it is also really powerful that when you can kind of be casual about inclusivity, you know, um, when you can uh, use correct gender pronouns, even if they're maybe like unwieldy for most people, if it's a they, let's say, or something like that, and you just kind of do it, you know, um, or you talk mm-hmm. about someone's gender or you talk about gender identity in a way that's not, you know, a, an assumption about heteronormativity, right? Like if you, for instance, right. in, a, in class, I don't know what you, I can't even remember I don't think she said what she teaches. Um, if you're in a class and someone uses pronouns, you know, male pronouns to discuss an unknown person, like you might be like, hey, you know, let's not do that. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. And also if you if people make assumptions, you just in like I like my dad is a professor. Um, and I remember he did this before it was cool, but I remember it being moved to, even though I'm his daughter, like hearing him use she to describe like some um, hypothetical actuary. He teaches actuarial science. Mm. And he was like in a class saying like, so uh, this in, in this problem, you know, we have an actuary who's dealing with an co- insurance company who wants to know the risk, you know, risk of this particular cohort. And what she needs to do is, Right. Mm-hmm. And how does even like yeah. doing that can matter? Um, and in, if and if she's in that conservative an environment, I think even that can be an important kind of signal to people. And it, it makes me sad that some folks, you know, even some progressives roll their eyes at that. But that can, that can be really important. It, it can to hear someone you respect, uh, an authority figure, uh, kind of signal. Um, and, you know, haha, virtue signaling. But no, seriously, signal that, you know, if you're if, if you're uh, a woman out there who wants to, you know, be an astronaut or head up NASA someday, you know, I support you. If you are a queer kid, um, y- you know, um, making a point about pronouns means a lot. Yeah. Making a pronoun you know, about th- using husband and wife. Right. Like not assuming like when yeah. we say, saying partner rather than husband or wife, saying spouse rather than husband or wife, you know. I mean, I think that my thing lately is that I I no longer say mom and dad because I used to say, yeah. um, you know, if you're a mom and dad or whatever, I say and I just have now say parents, like if you're parental figures or parents or whatever. I do think that that stuff matters. And also, again, like if, if she's in this conservative environment, then that stuff is going to stand out, you know, and her students mm-hmm. might be able to 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 know yeah, she has virtue signaled. And maybe if I show up for office hours and have a question about something, this person will, you know, listen <laughs> and not judge me. They'll be open. Yeah. Um, when, when I was at West Point, I remember vividly uh, there was a class and my my friend happened to be in the same class. He was. Uh, and it was about 10 of us and um, this old grizzled um retired one-star general was teaching the course. I think it was Calculus 2, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, he made a point of doing the same thing. Like, he used a a female pronoun for, like, some fictional, um, you know, higher-level mathematician. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, one of our classmates said she. He's like, yeah, she. She did this. And it was so funny how casually he dismissed that that you know fellow cadet's question, mm-hmm. and and next to me, my friend is like you know pinching me like you know that look at this guy like he he gets it mm-hmm. you know he seems to get why things like that are important and and sure enough you know over the rest of the semester it was clear that even though this was you know this this kind of grizzled retired army officer uh, he understood the importance of feeling like you belong and feeling like it's not silly for. Uh, a woman to believe that she can, you know, be a great scientist someday or, uh, you know, for 
someone to be attracted to someone of the same sex or for a person who's in the closet to you know, not so be apprehensive down the road about coming out as transgender or non-binary mm-hmm. or genderqueer um, of, of sorts. So, yeah, we laugh at virtue signaling. And I know that there are some folks in the progressive movement who kind of think it's nonsense, but it's not. It really does save lives. It really, really does. And I will say about virtue signaling, what I say about social justice warrior is show me the word in those things that's bad. Right. (laughs) Social justice and warrior all seem like good things. Virtue and signaling, those seem like good things. You know what it is, by the way? I, I think it's because, you know, a lot of folks these days are too afraid to be vulnerable. Uh, we, we have this really big strand within the progressive movement that's all about ironic detachment and not taking things too seriously. Um, and I've even heard, you know, I've heard the term regressive uh, applied to people who do believe, yeah, it fucking matters that, you know, transgender people want certain pronouns or want to serve in the military you know, or that a woman, um, you know, doesn't have to be in a workplace and hear rape jokes or her boss ask her out. Uh, you know, these things matter. And it, 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 it scares me how much certain folks in the progressive movement um, are not introspective enough on, you know, the issue of, you know, maybe I'm not taking this seriously enough. Maybe my privilege is kind of blinding me to this. It doesn't make you a bad person. You know, it doesn't make, uh, you know, having privilege doesn't make you a bad person. But when you're when you're aware that you have privilege and you willfully ignore it, that does make you an enormous asshole. It really does. <laughs> I, I can't think of a better way to put it. Um, I was just funny. I was just talking, actually. So I, I did an interview for Barbara Boxer's podcast, which um, was interesting. Everyone has a podcast, including every former senator. Um, <laughs> but she was asking me, she was actually kind of adorable because she was like, you're a young person. Tell me about young people getting involved in politics. And I'm like, I'm 45. And she's like, you're young to me. <laughs> <laughs> that must have felt a little good, though. Yeah, it did. No, it felt great. But she was asking me about the young people in politics thing. And I was like, well, I'm actually Gen X. And I kind of did this like sort of thumbnail history, which included pointing <laughs> out that um, when I talk about Gen X, I actually am talking about largely like white middle class people, right? That our stereotype of Gen X is this very, is actually a smaller cohort of a whole generation, you know. And but I can speak about that white middle class experience, and that we aren't actually super involved in electoral politics. <laughs> I mean, maybe we're getting more so, but um, you know, our our affect for whatever reason and partially like the media we grew up in, the economic climate we grew up in, we're pretty, um, we're much more throw spitballs from the back of the class um, in our approach, which I think, you know, worked for the the Bush era for sure, right? Like that was, mm-hmm. you know, John Stewart way of looking at the world. Um, it was definitely like my wonket way of looking at the world is like, eh, you know, <laughs> God. You know, politicians roll eyes, make jokes. Um, yeah. But that that has not translated well, right? Uh, and I actually feel like I look to younger people because I... Throwing spitballs from the back of the class is no longer the appropriate approach. <laughs> no, um, it's really not. It, it is, you have to be up there in front raising your hands, you know, um, uh, like Reese Witherspoon in election, right? You got to be just be there and not be afraid of appearing earnest, uh, not be af- afraid of, of, of really wanting something. Like, I really actually want something, not I kind of like, oh, that'd be nice or wow, you're weird for wanting something, you know? Right. Like, why, what the hell is that? I don't understand it. I think you're like, right. Why is it bad, you know, that, um, I don't know, it's just this this very strange thing where it's become uncool in some circles to care a lot about something and to show that you care about it. Yeah. Um, you talked about, you know, being part of Gen X and, you know, you, know, you lived through the 90s and it was this, um, you know, really interesting. I mean, I'm not saying it was perfect, but you had an economic boom and, you know, there were certainly issues that you had to worry about, but we could rely mostly on government knowing what the hell they're doing. Yep. Um, and then, you know, Bush comes in and 
uh, things kind of start to fall apart pretty rapidly. And what I've noticed, and I've seen this in myself, by the way, I am not innocent of this at all, is that those of us with privilege, and especially those of us with white privilege, you know, we kind of discovered all of a sudden that, oh, yeah, uh, black citizens are getting, um, you know, uh, uh, murdered by police for no reason uh, and being incarcerated at higher rates. Um, you know, those of us with male privilege that, you know, women are, you know, being raped at disproportionate rates on college campuses and sexually harassed in the workplace, not getting paid you know, enough for what they do. And there's all these things that I think points to a frustration among those who don't have that privilege and haven't had the kind of privilege that insulates them from the world's problems that are, you know, deep in the nitty gritty. And so we kind of get defensive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when when I, I think the, the thing I've seen most of all is the 47% figure, right? 47% of white women. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. It's the opposite. 53% of white women yep. voted for Trump yep. in the United States. And, and women of color have rightly brought that up many times. And, in, you know, they're not saying, you know, you, they're not saying you're a bad person because you're white. They're saying you're not being actively engaged if you know white women who voted for Trump and yet you're not using your privilege and access to them to change their minds. And they're absolutely right. Like how much, you know, how much have I reached out to, you know, folks back home in Texas uh, that I know um, to ask them aggressively, like, you know, why are you supporting this you know, awful person? OK, well, okay, and, Charlotte, hold on just one second, because you personally, I would say you get a little bit of leeway because we don't want people to, you know, be aggressive about um, asking for accountability if it puts them in any kind of personal danger. Or... Oh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so I wouldn't want you calling up your most like bigoted Texas relatives, maybe like, you know, like, you know, you know best. Right, right, right. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm just saying want, to you yeah. personally, I, I, because I care about you. Like, I don't think it's your responsibility to call the most, you know, people who will listen to you. Yes, you should. You know, but we know who that is. I appreciate that. You know, like. Um, we I, do. Oh, we we definitely know who that is. Um, no, that's a that's a really good point. I, I and I probably should have prefaced that. Like, if don't put yourself in an unsafe situation. Don't take on labor that, you know, you shouldn't be taking on. But um, if you can, I'm sorry, if you have you can, the space, if you have if you the can. space and privilege, then you should. If it's all it's going to do is hurt someone's feelings or make for an uncomfortable moment or two, then go for it. Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, if all you're yeah. risking safety, is whether or not priority. you you going to get a coffee invite next week, then maybe go ahead. <laughs> if you're risking, if you're going to get snubbed at the uh, the block barbecue, right? yeah, right. Um, well, anyway, I, I really yeah. appreciate you coming on, Charlotte. Uh, I am, you know, you, we've we've talked on the phone. We've 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 you know we're Twitter friends, um, but I feel like you know actually you know now we're friend friends. Uh, and I oh, just of course we are appreciate uh, the work you've done. I appreciate the fact um, that you are out and living your life and and being visible to other people that may not have a lot of other. Um, visible trans people. Again, the thing about trans people is that we have no idea really how many there are. So let's mm-hmm. everyone be careful about what you think, you know, don't make your assumptions. Um, but being visible is really important. And would you be okay if I give a a, a parting thought real quick? Because oh, sure. I, I want to kind of cover my own ass and that of other people. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I really appreciate folks who've listened to this and considered what I had to say. Uh-huh. But just know that Listening to me on this podcast does not give anyone a license to walk up to your transgender friend and, and be like, please teach me about these things. Right. You know, um, Google, you know, Google it if you have to look up resources on HRC.org or Lambda Legal or the Transgender uh, Law Center. Um, you know, put put the labor on yourself. Don't put it on your trans and non-binary friends and don't assume their lives are just like mine. Uh be, and because they're likely not, they go through a different set of struggles than I do. So, just want to put point that out real quick. There are lots of books. People have written books. Um, so many books. Many, many. Sarah many, McBride's many, book. Uh, many, many. Um, uh, Janet Mock has written a couple, like four, maybe three. Um, which uh, she's a wonderful writer. Um, and so yeah, read. Uh, and all you need to do with your trans friends is just not be an asshole. 
that's not be an asshole. In fact, do that with all your friends. Just don't be an asshole. I'm trying to not use the F word on here, but we don't have FCC to worry about. So, you know, let's go for it. Don't be a fucking asshole. Don't be a fucking asshole, people. And I think we have the title for our show. Um, Anyway. (laughs) And uh, thank you for all you do, by the way. Thank you for the visibility that that you give out to other people. And, you know, the fact that you do try to bring folks on this show uh, who may not um, get that kind of visibility. I I mean, just, I I really appreciate that. I know others do too. Now a bit of super fan housekeeping. In last week's uh, closing episode, I mentioned that some of the enthusiastic uh, but critical feedback to our Starbucks episode kind of put me in a bit of an existential tailspin. And I want to be super clear about this. That is on me, not on those who were giving honest, but maybe negative reactions to the show. Please do not mistake my using that criticism as a way to beat myself up as a plea to not criticize the show. I think one of the absolute coolest things about what I do, what we do here is knowing that this show makes a difference in people's lives. That's a gift and a privilege, and it's also a responsibility, because if I'm going to presume that you take me seriously, I'm going to take you seriously, too. And if I want to have an impact on your life, sometimes it might be an impact that I wasn't hoping for. So, you know, feedback is welcome uh, at withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. That said, it is always easier to hear people's criticisms when they come framed with care and respect. So, you know, be nice. And I I would say that goes for any criticism you might have for anyone. And you can also send any questions you might have to that address with friendslikepod at gmail.com. I hope everyone takes care of themselves this week. You deserve it. See you next Friday.